0: This is Bloomberg Law.
1: Some complicated international law issues here. What kind of docket is Chief Justice Roberts facing?
0: Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts.
1: Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Neil Devens, a professor at William & Mary Law School.
0: And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines.
1: President Trump lost resoundingly in the circuit courts an unusually
2: large number of immigration cases. Bloomberg Law with June
0: Grasso from Bloomberg
2: Radio. Welcome to Bloomberg Law. I'm Greg Storr in for June Grasso. Coming up on the show, the Supreme Court rejects a Nevada church that said the state's coronavirus capacity restrictions discriminate against religion. And we'll dive into the growing controversy over the way states are conducting bar exams during the pandemic. But first, earlier this month, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg revealed that she was again being treated for cancer. That was about a week and a half after the court confirmed a Washington Post report that Chief Justice John Roberts had been hospitalized after falling and hitting his forehead. With me to talk about the Supreme Court's disclosure practices when it comes to health issues is Duke Law School professor Marin Levy. Marin, thanks very much for joining us. Um, Let's start with Justice Ginsburg. She's disclosed a lot of health information over the years, but uh, twice in the last year alone, she has revealed cancer only after the treatment was proved to be working. Is what she is revealing to the public enough in your mind?
1: That's a great question, Greg, and I just want to say thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, So I think the justice has been very clear in disclosing her health issues, but as you said, the issue seems to be around the timing. So we just learned um, a week and a half ago that she found out in February that the cancer had returned. Um, She underwent one treatment, immunotherapy, that was not successful, and we only now know about it um, because she's undergone a second round of treatment, chemotherapy, that seems to be doing much better. And I would say um, it would have been helpful to know about this sooner.
2: And what about John Roberts? So uh, it was revealed this month he had fallen, he hit his forehead, uh, got stitches, and was hospitalized overnight. The Supreme Court doesn't uh, reveal that until uh, The Washington Post gets a tip and asks about it. Uh, Is that something that you would have liked to have seen John Roberts disclose on his own without having to be prompted?
1: Absolutely. So there I think we have two separate issues. One, as you mentioned, is the timing. Um, so we don't learn about the incident that happened in June um, until over two weeks after it happened. But then second is the fact that the court did not come out um, and disclose the information. It was only after the post, as you said, received the tip that they followed up with the court and then we get the confirmation. This is the kind of thing I think the court really needs to be coming out in front with.
2: So, so why is that? Why do we need to know this sort of information about Supreme Court justices?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's a hard question, to be honest, really parsing out why the public has an interest to know. I would say a couple things on this. The first is, I think, just as a general matter, the public is interested in knowing that the justices are in good health, just given how important they are in our democracy, really. Um, And the court itself seems to acknowledge this. So if you go back to the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the reporters actually asked the court to start providing updates on the justices' health, just to make sure they were doing okay, um, they weren't being impacted by the coronavirus. And the court said yes. And As far as we know, we've been receiving those updates. Um, so kind of general acknowledgement that the public is interested in the health of the justices. I think separately from that, we have a real interest going into an election like this. Um, the, the court is on the mind of at least some voters, and if we know that some of the justices are not in good health, um, that could impact the way people vote in the upcoming election.
2: Does it make a difference that we're talking about physical ailments here as opposed to mental ailments? Uh, you know, to go back into history a little bit, uh, when Justice William Douglas back in the early 70s was uh, right. w- was losing some of his mental capacity, uh, per- arguably perhaps that, that raised a different issue. Does it matter that we're, uh, as far as we know, just talking about physical ailments
1: I don't think so, um, and again, for a couple of reasons. So the first being, and, and I hate to talk about this, it, it reminds me of something Chief Justice Rehnquist said, you know, that there is this speculation about the health of the justices that can run into the kind of ghoulish, as you put it, territory. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think, you know, it's fair to think about, um, will the next administration be appointing any justices to the court? And so part of that is we do think about their health overall, not just their mental acuity. Um, so, so that's, what I think, really the most important point. But the other is a larger point about transparency. You know, I think it's really critical for the legitimacy of the court that the public feel that the justices are being honest with them. Um, and again, that we aren't having these issues like we are now, where we're learning about things only after the fact. And in some cases, it's the prompting of, of um, the media.
2: How confident are you that we know what we need to know? Um, you know we've talked about some health issues uh, some other justices have have revealed things uh, Justice sotomayor of course has been very upfront about her lifelong diabetes um, are you concerned that there are other things that we don't know about perhaps some some other justices?
1: so I am I think you know the real problem is at the end of the day we We just don't have confidence that we know everything at this point. And in some ways, this most recent incident with Justice Ginsburg underscores that. Um, You know, I think all along we had thought we really knew everything about her health records because she had been what seemed to be quite forthcoming. And in fact, when Justice Roberts had this recent health scare, um, some folks thought it was problematic that we didn't hear about it sooner and pointed to Justice Ginsburg as kind of a model of somebody disclosing health issues. But to now know that we didn't even know some of her health history, um, I think, raises a whole host of questions. And it really would be better if we had a clear policy from the court um, that we will know certain things, say, if a justice has a serious health scare that we know within some you know, pretty quick time
2: frame. <laughs> I want to thank our guest. That's Duke Law School Professor Marin Levy talking about uh, health issues and disclosures by Supreme Court justices. Thanks very much for joining us on Bloomberg Law. Coming up on the show, the coronavirus outbreak is giving new life to the push for alternatives to the in-person bar exam. I'm Greg Storr. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio.
2: I'm Greg Storian in for June Grasso. Summer is the traditional time for recent law school graduates to gather in courthouses and convention centers around the country to take the bar exam. But this is the summer of COVID-19, which makes such large gatherings risky, and many states are scrambling to revamp their test protocols. With me is Sam Skolnick, who has been covering these developments for Bloomberg Industry Group and Bloomberg Business Week. Sam, thanks for for joining us. Um, give us the big picture. Uh, how many states are going ahead with in-person bar exams over the next uh, few weeks?
3: As of uh, actually tomorrow and Wednesday, 23 states are scheduled. Almost half of the states are scheduled for in-person exams. Um, and then in September and/or September and October, there are another 13, including a couple of the same states which are offering them twice. But most of these are separate states. Um, so, in the end, we're talking about uh, more than half of the states are still going ahead with in person exams um, over the next couple of months. And of course, this is happening in many states uh, that are now seeing COVID 19 spikes for the first time, uh, or they're seeing um, a resurgence of the disease uh, in these states. And it's causing great and growing concern among the test takers who are being asked. Uh, to sit in these, in what are many cases, huge exam halls um, right next to scores, if not hundreds, of other test takers. Um, even if they're, so they're, what the states are doing is uh, they're, they are mandating social distancing requirements in many cases, if not most, if not all of these states. I haven't checked each of these states, but I would imagine that almost all, if not all of them are. And so they include, for example, temperatures to be taken uh, upon entering the test site. Uh, They include a little bit more space in between the test takers than is usually the case. Um, And then regarding masks, um, most of the states are requiring that each of the test takers uh, wear masks, but not all. Um, I talked to, for example, uh, a spokeswoman from the West Virginia courts uh, who noted that they are urging their uh, test takers to put on masks, they are requiring them to at least bring them in, they're going to have spares on hand as needed, but they're not actually requiring it. Basically, they're giving folks an out. They're saying, if you think that it's going to interfere with your ability to take the exam as successfully as possible, then it's okay not to wear it. So, 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 so yeah.
2: Well, well, so you, you've, what are the people who are taking these exams, uh, are planning to take these exams, telling you? I know you've talked to a lot of them. Give us a, a, sure. a sense of what they're thinking.
3: So a lot of the folks that I've talked to are gravely concerned. I mean, I, so I've been on the phone with folks um, who, have, uh, who are immunocompromised, for example, because, for example, they're uh, cancer survivors. Uh, or one recently gave birth. Um, and or others who live in multi generational households, uh, or who have elderly parents come by regularly to help to help take care of their kids. In each of these kinds of cases, they're concerned about contracting the disease, and then in, in other in other instances, possibly then spreading it to family members. I mean, this is it's a it's a brutal situation to be put through when you look at it from their point of view. It's on top of these other concerns. First off, these exams are aren't necessarily easy. I mean, in some states, the pass rate is can be less than fifty percent. Although I think, I think in most states it's a bit higher, but uh, don't quote me on that. But nevertheless, they're in
2: depending. <laughs> you're on, on the radio, state, Sam. You're, you're quoted. quoted.
3: <laughs> yes, exactly. They can be quite tough. Uh, number one, number two is they have financial considerations. Uh, and COVID-19 is also impacting the legal industry, as you know, Greg, sort of writ large, uh, and making it, in some cases, tougher for these folks, uh, young folks, to find and secure legal jobs. And at the same time as all of this, is many of these folks don't come from wealthy backgrounds, and so they're coming in with a lot of indebtedness, all school loans that so they are anxious to pay off. So when there are extra delays on top of uh, the normal delays, to get licensed as a lawyer, it adds tremendous amounts of pressure for these folks. Um, yeah, so yeah, so, they're, they're going through rough times, yeah.
2: Yeah, so, so are, are there any alternatives? Have states come up with any alternatives and, and how mm-hmm. are those being received?
3: Yeah, so um, it, it's funny you mentioned, right? So uh, state by state, it really, in a broad sense, I've had a couple folks say to me out of the blue, it really is a, it's a chaotic national scene when you look at it. it the way that this, the way that lawyers are licensed uh, in this country, it, it really is state by state. But when you look at it nationally, many states have taken other alternatives, trying to take into account uh, the health considerations, these public health considerations. And so, some states, uh, several in fact, uh, more than twenty, are offering online exams. But it's not necessarily a panacea, in as much as, literally, just within the last week. Uh, two of these states, um, I believe it's Nevada, Indiana, had had to delay their uh, online exam, which they were set to run tomorrow because of technical software glitches from one of the vendors that they're using for the test. So I've had some of these folks who are in states getting prepared for these online tests uh, tell me that they're not even sure that ultimately these tests are going to go off. As planned now, there are a whole bunch of states that are scheduled uh, for their online exam. That's being set by a national group in early October. But I think a lot of folks are concerned and noting that that might not even happen. So that's one alternative. There are yet other alternatives that have, that go to the fundamental way in which lawyers are licensed, which typically has been through the bar exam. But these other models, these alternative licensing models. Uh, one is called diploma privilege. The other provisional licensing, which is kind of like a compromise solution, would mean that these would-be lawyers can either delay taking the bar or they can skip it entirely in the case of diploma privilege. uh, What that means is the states are basically conceding that law school is sufficient legal education that they don't need to take and pass the bar for them to be licensed as a lawyer. It takes not just the pressure off the students, but it takes also the pressure off of legal employers. Uh, We're talking government agencies, you know, private law firms and everything in between that are eager to get these young folks on board. Um, And uh, some of them are actually happy with that solution as well. There are now four states that have instituted diploma privilege, uh, Oregon, Washington State, Utah, and Louisiana. Just as a result of this COVID-19 scare, there was only one state in the country that's added for more than a century, Wisconsin, and it's 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 a smaller state, but it's run fairly well for the graduates of those two law schools in that state, according to most accounts.
2: Sam, we we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, interesting uh, story and uh, interesting to watch it going forward, how states continue to, exa- to adapt trying to go forward with their bar exams uh, in this time of coronavirus. Uh, thanks to Sam Skolnick, who has been covering this issue for Bloomberg Industry Group. Coming up on Bloomberg Law, environmentalists ask the Supreme Court to stop progress on President Trump's border wall. could be a pivotal moment on a divisive issue. I'm Greg Storr. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
2: I'm Greg Storian for June Grosso. A pivotal moment is coming in President Donald Trump's drive to build a wall along the Mexican border. Opponents are asking the Supreme Court to revisit a year-old order that'll let the administration start using Pentagon funds to construct fencing. With me to talk about that is Bloomberg Industry Group's Ellen Gilmer, Uh, Ellen, thanks for joining us on the show. Um, These groups include the Sierra Club. They're represented by the the ACLU. What exactly are they asking the Supreme Court for?
4: They want the Supreme Court to lift a previous order that was issued about a year ago that allowed border wall construction to move forward while there was some litigation going on in the lower courts that uh, was getting at whether the funding the president was using for the border wall was legal.
2: In, in put put this in context for me. How much of the the Trump's wall has has already been built, roughly? If we don't have exact numbers, using this this authority, using this other money, and and how much more is he uh, hoping to build before uh, election day or the end of the year? Yeah. So the, the,
1: the, since President Trump took office, uh,
4: the administration has built more than two hundred miles of wall. But most of that was just replacing fencing that was already there. Um, And as far as how much they they want to get done, it's kind of a moving target. But the president has said this year that he's hoping to get 500 miles done by the end of 2020. Um, So that's obviously quite a bit more than the, the 200 that's done so far
2: um and, and what's the what's the argument against the wall being made by these groups not so much at the at the Supreme Court yet but what's what's the argument on the ground for why why a wall would be problematic
4: So the environmental groups uh, who are involved in this case, the Sierra Club uh, and, and a group of other communities that are along the border. And they're concerned about the environmental impacts, um, the direct impacts um, that construction would have on the surrounding environment. Um, but the legal question is really whether it was appropriate for the president to use this kind of emergency funding mechanism for the border wall after Congress declined to, to provide the full amount of funding the president asked for. I mean, listeners will remember the big government shutdown uh, about a year, a year and a half ago. And that was all about this issue of whether Congress would make this money available. Congress didn't make all the money available. The president chose this emergency route. question is, was that legal? Was it constitutional?
2: So as you said, this is really a follow-up to uh, an order the court issued a, a year ago. What did the court say then, and what, if anything, does that tell us about what the court might do with this request to lift the stay order?
4: So a year ago, the Supreme Court uh, issued a short order that essentially just allowed border wall construction to move forward, even though lower courts were going to block construction from moving forward while the litigation in the lower courts was moving forward. They were going to block it. The Supreme Court said no. But as is often the case in these short orders from the Supreme Court, there wasn't a lot there. To, you know, there wasn't a lot uh, of, of analysis there for, for anybody to, to glean anything from. So uh, we don't know, you know, in depth what the court's reasonings were. But it is hard for, I mean, it's rare for the Supreme Court to grant that kind of a stay. So it certainly suggests that the Supreme Court was potentially skeptical of what the lower courts had, had decided in, in deciding to halt construction. Uh, Now the Sierra Club and the ACLU are asking them to to reconsider now that a year has gone by and and construction is is rolling forward.
2: So this is not the only border wall litigation out there. Uh, Can you put this in context in terms of the other uh, legal fights? What else should we be looking for when it comes to litigation over the the border fencing?
4: So the Sierra Club and ACLU case that we're talking about, that has to do with funding, Uh, There are other cases that also have to do with funding brought by states, uh, brought by other groups, members of Congress. Um, But there's other litigation that goes beyond that that's looking at things like uh, the administration has used waivers to waive certain environmental laws and other statutes uh, for border wall construction. That's being litigated so far been successful. Um, And there's other litigation that deals with specific border wall sections. There's one that crosses a butterfly refuge in Texas, things like that. There's just all kinds of stuff uh, from landowners, from environmentalists, from states, etc.
2: This is kind of an unusual request, isn't it, that that they're asking the court to lift an, an earlier order?
4: It is. I mean the Supreme Court, when the Supreme Court speaks, that's usually that's usually the final word on something, but because so much time has passed since that order and because that is still in effect and construction can keep on going while the legal questions are, are kind of still out there, the CR club says it, it deserves a second look.
2: A lot for you to follow. That's all the time we have. I want to thank Bloomberg Industry Group's Ellen Gilmore uh, for talking to us about uh, the Supreme Court uh, request by environmental groups to stop construction on Donald Trump's border wall. Coming up on Bloomberg Law is Nevada favoring casinos over churches and trying to reopen the state during the coronavirus outbreak. I'm Greg Storr. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
2: I'm Greg Storian for June Grosso. Late Friday, the Supreme Court said it wouldn't ease Nevada's coronavirus capacity restrictions for worship services, rejecting a discrimination claim by a church near Reno. The vote was 5-4, to four, with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the liberals in the majority with us to talk about this development to religious liberties experts, Stanford Law Professor Michael McConnell and University of Miami Law Professor Caroline Mala Corbin. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Um, but Mike, let me start with you. Um, can you just lay out the basics for us? What, what was the church arguing here and what was it seeking from the Supreme Court?
0: Well, I think it's important to stress that what they were asking for was a temporary injunction pending appeal uh and there's a very high standard uh for those so i don't think we should interpret the supreme court's decision as the final word on the merits of their argument and the merits of their argument are, are really very powerful uh the, the church argues that it uh, under the nevada order uh the uh, activities like uh the for-profit activities like uh the casinos and uh, gyms and bowling alleys and a number of other uh, activities of that sort are allowed to meet with more than 50, per 50 uh, a persons present. In fact, casinos, it can be thousands, and under circumstances where people are together for extended periods of time without the kind of social distancing that the church has provided, and that. Uh, it is unconstitutional, the church argues, uh, to single out a religious activity and say, "Well, churches can't meet uh, when organizations, secular activities of of uh, other nature, such as these for-profit businesses, are uh, able to meet with no explanation." Or at least, the government re- is required to provide an explanation uh, for why it is discriminating against a religious activity and Nevada provided none.
2: Carolyn, we didn't actually get a majority opinion here. The court uh, rejected the, the application without explanation. We did have a case last uh, back in, in uh, May where the court had a similar issue. Um, can you try to fill in the blanks? What uh, is your understanding of what the court's likely or probable rationale was here in, in rejecting the, the application from the church?
5: Um, there could be two ways of thinking about this one of them is as chief justice roberts did in the earlier decision the majority is taking a very deferential approach to emergency orders during a pandemic and in that case the usually more rigorous standards that they would apply are not applied because there is a public health emergency Um, Ultimately, they don't think that religion is being singled out in the way that amounts to odious discrimination against worship services.
2: Now, Mike, um, we've got three dissenting opinions to to choose from, in this case, from the the, uh, Justices Alito. Uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh saying the court should have interbe- intervened. Um, you described earlier the, the church is having a pretty powerful argument. Um, spell that out a little bit. Uh, it, it, why on the merits of it does, does the church have a pretty good uh, claim in your case, in your mind? Well, first
0: of all, I want to say that I think this Nevada case is quite different from the earlier California case, where which was also 5-4, to four and where Chief Justice Roberts wrote an opinion explaining why they rejected the argument of the churches there. Just read one, let me read one short sentence from that California case, uh, where the Chief Justice Roberts says that the uh, California order... Uh, treats more leniently only dissimilar activities in which people neither congregate in large groups nor remain in close proximity for extended periods. So that may have been true in California, but it certainly is not true in the Nevada case, where if you look at pictures of the of the casinos that are open now, you, you have you know huge numbers of people in very close proximity they stay there for a very long time um it's much more dangerous from at least i'm no you know public health expert but at least in terms of uh being uh, congregating in close proximity it looks much more dangerous and add in the alcohol uh that served at uh uh, at, at casinos, which means people, even if they are trying to, uh, to 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 wear masks, they're going to be lifting them up in order to drink their beverages, and we all know that alcohol, you know, causes certain uh, uh, decline and in, in in good judgment. Whereas this church is going to it, it has basically eighty people; uh, they want uh, the the capacity is over twice that large, so they are spaced uh with families more than six uh persons apart and with a number of protocols that according to uh, the expert i uh, and, and the case are m- more stringent than those required by the uh by the CDC so it's very hard to understand uh i mean how uh, Nevada can justify uh saying that uh the churches cannot meet uh with more than 50 people whereas these other activities like Uh, casinos can. Now, uh, in order to decide the case, though, the, the court should not be making up its own public health policy. But what the Constitution requires is that the government justify what it 's doing, and Nevada has offered no justification for this. I think the same the, the the Supreme Court has been quite uh consistent you know left and right on demanding uh that the government justify itself in in recent cases like the census case or like the the uh, daPA case recently the court has struck down. A government action that may very well be lawful on the ground that the government failed to offer any uh, serious justification. Here, Nevada has offered no justification for treating uh, churches differently than it does these for-profit businesses, and I think that that would be a, a sufficient basis for holding their action unconstitutional. At least if they, yeah. if the, if we're talking on the merits. Now, maybe. Yeah preliminary injunctions are a different thing
2: let me circle back to that if we we have a minute caroline do you disagree with any of that and is is, is mike asking the right questions here is it should we be comparing
5: i think my my question is not so different because i think what is really crucial (laughs) is is the state treating worship services the same as comparable secular activities or worse than comparable secular activities. If they're treating the same as activities that pose the same kind of health risk, then there's really no constitutional problem. And I think... Um, That was at least the case in the first religious challenge, that religious organizations were not treated worse than comparable secular activities. Now, if religious worship services alone are singled out for worse treatment, then you clearly have a problem. Here the case is a little tricky, Um, because worship services are treated the same as some comparable secular activities, like going to a museum or the movies or a concert, but is also treated worse than many other secular activities, such as the ones listed, like restaurants, bars, gyms, and casinos. And I think in that case, it's not quite as clear-cut as it is when it's treated the same as all comparable activities or religion alone is treated differently than comparable secular activities
2: mike Mike, you were about to talk about the the Kind of the procedural status of this case is a preliminary injunction, and we've got a you know Supreme Court order here that happened on kind of a rush basis. And I, I guess my question for both of you in the in the last few minutes we have left is: Is this a good way to be deciding these these issues? Is there uh, and should the standards be different when uh, it, it comes to the courts, both the lower courts and the Supreme Court, uh, on such a rush basis without a full record and without you know a real chance to die? as deeply into these issues as perhaps the court needs to Mike what, what, what do you think
0: I do think that, that that it's a real problem for the courts to have these things on as you say such a rushed uh, basis, especially when uh, you know it's potentially life and death uh, at stake and and I think this is the best way to understand what Chief Justice Roberts has done because he has been um, against uh, the issuance of these, you know, rushed preliminary injunctions in uh, a number of contexts where uh, he's been somewhat consistent about pretty, actually pretty daggone consistent, whereas uh, the left and the right of the court have tended to uh, to, to go their sort of ideological ways. He's, uh, he has voted to vacate. Uh, these sort of rushed injunctions in cases favored by the left and favored by the right. And I think that may be what's going on here.
2: Car- Caroline, what's your take on that?
5: Uh, I, I don't know. I, I do want to pick up on the one point you mentioned, which is this is literally about a life and death situation. And I think the court uh, is really concerned about the, uh, granted, it, it, it perhaps should not be influenced decisions, but I don't think you can, the Supreme Court can ignore the fact that we are in the midst of a global pandemic um, and that these kinds of activities, both worship services and casinos, serve as vectors for the spread of the contagion. And that, really, they should both be shut down. Um, They may be worried that they're both going to end up being open. And, and, and again, that may explain why they may be more deferential than they really should be in, in these cases.
2: We're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank my guests, Caroline Mala Corbin and Michael McConnell, uh, both religious liberty experts, for joining us on Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm Greg Storen for June Grasso. This is Bloomberg.